Hello, and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And we will be learning about national anthems. Each week, we will choose a new country at random, we will learn a little bit about this country, and then we will listen to their anthem. After listening, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. We don't want you to think because of the title that we're huge fans of O Canada. In fact, we do plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly throughout the show, and we do not expect it to finish highly in the rankings at all. So, today we are getting into the story of Rwanda. This is going to be a really tough one for obvious reasons. The country is, at least here, by far most well-known for the horrible genocide that happened in the 1990s. I think that's probably true places besides here as well. So... I want to preface this episode by saying that I am not going to spend a terribly long amount of time talking about the genocide itself, not because it is not important and not because I want to minimize it, but because I found it very difficult to find sources talking about anything other than the genocide. So I'm going to try to give a fuller picture of the history of Rwanda as a whole. And I'm going to, when it comes time for that, recommend some better sources than myself for more direct research on that topic. What, you're not going to go and become a historian on the Rwanda genocide? I mean... It is interesting, no doubt, but there there are smarter people than I out there writing better stuff than I ever could. With stronger stomachs. <laughs> so let's get into the geography a little bit of Rwanda. It is a landlocked country in central eastern Africa. It is bordered by Uganda to the north, Tanzania to the east, Burundi to the south, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Congo to the west. It is the ninth smallest country in Africa by land mass. Uh, it is larger, however, than both Eswatini and Sao Tome. Hmm. Um, it is a diverse country ecologically, despite its small size. There are rainforests, there are savannas, there are volcanoes. It's quite a fascinating country in terms of the geography of it all. Yeah. Um, I, when I was looking into where Rwanda sat on the list of... Because the first source I looked at just said it's one of the smallest countries in Africa. And I'm okay. like, not good enough. <laughs> I need a number. So um, I was surprised to learn what the largest country in Africa was, actually. What is it? It's Algeria. Oh, that's really interesting. I think part of what we talk about in our lack of knowledge about things not Western specifically, I feel like in my brain, all the African countries are like about the same. Well, <laughs> Just kind of like tiles on a map. And I, I never really thought about the and there's certainly, actual size. There's certainly a long history too of map projections underplaying yes. the size of African That's nations. That's true too. That's true too. So I wonder if... You know, Algeria is just a lot bigger than it looks on the whatever Mercator projection that yeah. we get on all our maps. Yeah. 
but yeah, that was just a side note that I thought was kind of interesting. That is interesting. Uh, so Rwanda is basically immediately to the west of where the earliest remains of the uh, Australopithecus have been found, like mm. the earliest predecessors to the humans. Cool. Those were found in Tanzania, Kenya, and Ethiopia. Okay. Um, so while Tanzania is quite a large country mm -hmm. uh rwanda relative to the rest of africa is very close to it mm -hmm. being right on its border uh so homo sapiens had dominated the central african region by the paleolithic era it took the course of roughly a hundred thousand years uh these early people would build simple tools mainly stone knives and axes and as time went by they would develop fire and cooking so agriculture likely spread to Central Africa about 10,000 years ago, and that would have been as a response to a dry period in the world's climate. <laughs> so fishing tools would have sprang up roughly parallel to farming tools, uh, and both farming and fishing encouraged people to settle small villages and create communities just logistically it makes more sense Yeah, that you way. plant your thing, you don't want to go for a walk while your You find corn a good fishing spot? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So pottery would be created in these small villages for the first time in this region, and Bantu languages would spread throughout the villages roughly three to four thousand years ago. Though some groups that uh, would remain would retain their hunter-gatherer ways didn't adopt these Bantu languages, mm. notably the Twa people of Rwanda, who are a hunter-gatherer group of pygmy peoples who were likely the first to settle in the region of Rwanda. Um, so they make up to this day, I think about 0.6% of the population of Rwanda, the, the Twa people, and they are still like traditional hunter gatherer people. And when you say pygmy, are they like little people? Yeah. Oh. Like the entire ethnic group. Is it dwarfism or is it? I don't Something know, else. to be honest. That's okay. I, I can look into that at the break and I'm, try to get a bit of a clearer idea of what exactly is the cause of that. I'm slightly curious, but yeah. you're also, you know, not an anthropologist. So it's, no, it's I'm, cool. I'm very it's cool. much not, <laughs> is the other side of this. Uh, so iron smithing would begin to spread to the region again about 3,000 years ago and probably spread from both Nigeria and Egypt. Uh, copper and bronze wouldn't actually be precursors to ironsmithing in the same way in Central Africa that they were, you know, in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually gained their popularity simultaneously to iron, but because iron existed, it wasn't a replacement. Copper and bronze gained popularity for different uses. Okay. So copper in particular was very, very popular for jewelry and ornamentation. It's copper that goes green, right? I think it's bronze that goes green, but I might be wrong. Okay, it doesn't that. matter. Um, focusing more specifically on Rwanda than on Central Africa, the region, like I said, was originally settled by the Twa people as early as the 5th century BCE. So the Hutu people would arrive in and settle in the region shortly after the Twa, and the Tutsi people would begin to arrive in the 14th century. So these three ethnic groups make up the vast majority of what is known as the Banyarwanda or those who come from Rwanda. Mm. So it's, it's sort of a blanket term for these ethnic groups that make up 
more than 99% of the Rwanda population cool. is the Banyarwanda. Uh, and like to this day, mm. their population is more than 99% Banyarwanda peoples. Uh, so the Hutu kings of this time were known as the Bahinza, and they were spoken about in oral traditions as having magical powers. They could call rain and stuff like that. Tutsi oral traditions from this time outlined a heroic invasion led by their king Gihanga, but historians have heavily disputed this account of things. It's more likely that the Tutsis came to the area uh, by way of a slow and peaceful migration over the course of several centuries. Okay. <laughs> the Tutsi people had a number of technological advancements over the Hutu at the time that they arrived in Rwanda, and this allowed them to take control of a lot of the land, establishing a kingdom in the 16th century. Hutu people would have their, lights, their rights to land ownership revoked during this period, and Tutsi-Hutu relations would be greatly influenced by a, an agreement known as the Ubuhake. So I'm not going to go into great detail on the, you know, the statutes of the sure. Ubuhake, <laughs> but... Uh, it, it was similar enough to European feudalism that I don't think we need to dwell on the ways that it was different here. Okay. The Hutu people had essentially been put into serfdom under the rule of the Tutsi king, known as the Mwami. Uh, so similar to the Bahinza, the Mwami's power was said to be divine in origin. He was descended from a child who fell from heaven by accident and went on to establish the lineage of this most powerful Tutsi royal clan. Humans love this stuff. We love King as God. We do. Just universe. Everybody does it. I, I don't it's even. very interesting. I don't even know that it's. That, you know, the common man loves the myth so much as it's a con a very convenient... The common man loves the myth of God. Yeah. And it's a very convenient way it's true. to convince people that you are infallible. Yes. And nothing you say can be opposed. It's true. I just love when people come up with the same thing separately. Yeah. Um, I went to, um, like, a, like, a anthropology museum in Vancouver... And they have their, like, so much stuff, drawers and drawers of artifacts and stuff. It's so cool. But they had a huge collection of masks um, from all over the world. And that's one of these things that I really love. It's like ev everybody uses masks, all for different purposes, but it's something everyone just, like, Well, and these stories even, it's cool. even get reused. Mm -hmm. Like, you... Uh one of the very first monotheistic religions, I believe, in history uh, was Zoroastrianism. And it's it's not widely followed today. I think there's about 100,000 Zoroastrians in the world. Uh, but if you look into the actual like story of Zoroastrianism, the Christian Jesus story just lifted it yeah. and changed <laughs> some names. Like, it is the same story. Yes, yes. Uh, so through the next three centuries, the Muami, this, um, this Tutsi king would consolidate power and expand the borders of the kingdom, having established the borders of modern day Rwanda by the early 19th century under Muami Kigeri IV. Uh, so Rwanda being a reasonably small country 
was actually kind of just passed by when European explorers passed through the Congo Basin in the mid-19th century. Um, Like, some of the worst fucking African explorers just skirted the edge of Rwanda on their way to Tanzania or wherever. Uh, But they did not end up passing through there, which, great for for the Rwandan people. No kidding, Uh, Rwanda and Burundi would, however, be claimed by Germany in 1885 at, do you want to guess where the conference was held? Is it Berlin? It's Berlin. At the Conference of Berlin, (laughs) they would be made part of German East Africa, along with Tanzania and a small part of modern-day Mozambique. Okay. So it would be 1894. Uh, This this conference is in 1885. Mm Mm-hmm. It would be 1894 before a single German person would visit Rwanda. A full (laughs) nine years after the agreement was made. It feels like such a lazy colonization. It's like, ugh, I don't want to go. Can you go? I don't feel like it. I'm busy in the Congo. Like, you know, maybe some random German who wanted to see Africa came through, but like no one came in an official capacity until 1894 that's late man so rwanda and burundi geographically they are right at the point where the german colonies in africa bump up against the dutch and english colonies oh i'm sure this will be fun it actually doesn't really cause that many problems here that's surprising the german colonial rulers were pretty much happy to rule indirectly through the muami okay even providing military aid to subjugate hutu tribes that had not yet come under the muami's control Mm. uh they also enforced extensive coffee planting throughout the country. And Rwanda is, in the modern day, major producer of coffee. Yeah, I feel like I go to the grocery store and a lot of those bags say Rwanda yeah. on them. Yeah. Uh, and Germany would also begin dispatching Christian missionaries to the region mm-hmm. at the turn of the 20th century. Okay. At the end of World War One, however, Germany's overseas holdings would be divided up as League of Nations mandates, mm-hmm. as we've seen so many times. Uh, Rwanda and Burundi at this point had formed themselves into a single administrative entity known as Rwanda Urundi. Uh, and this would come under the administration of Belgium being right on the border of Congo, which Belgium also administered. Yeah. Uh, under Belgian administration, a lot less attention was given to the powers of the Muami and the Belgians really start to dismantle that kind of feudalistic ubuhake system we talked about earlier okay uh when the un was formed belgium was mandated to begin integrating rwanda into the leadership of the country and they would institute a 10-year development plan for rwanda in 1952 this was meant to promote political stability uh but the the way it was implemented basically led to all of the power being held by a small Tutsi minority over the Hutu majority in the country. Years of unrest followed the announcement of this plan, leading to a state of emergency being declared and Congolese troops being called in to keep the peace. Mm. The UN would recommend in 1959 that the best way for whatever reason... I, the, the, <laughs> These seem like two unrelated things to me. 
Okay, what they say. The UN recommended in 1959 that the best way to counter the Tutsi hegemony, hegemony over Rwanda was to permanently unite the states of Rwanda and Burundi as one. Like, maybe they wanted okay. to put more power... I don't know what the demonym is, actually, but maybe they wanted to put more power in the hands of people from Burundi? Maybe? I feel like we do this podcast and the UN frequently is like, excuse me, I have an idea that I would like to take to the floor. I don't know. And, like, sometimes it's good ideas and sometimes it's like, it's what are like, you doing, what man? what are you even talking about? Yeah. <laughs> A peasant revolt would begin in November of 1959, and this quickly escalated into, like, a full-on organized political movement. Okay led by a guy named Gregoire Kayibanda. And this movement and the subsequent political party would be known as the Party for Hutu Emancipation. They would hold elections without the endorsement of the Belgian government in 1960 that would transport or transfer huge amounts of power, at least on the local level, into Hutu hands. In January of uh, 1961, a coup would be carried out that would lead to the creation of an all-Hutu provisional government with mm. Kayibanda as the president. Okay. Basically, just hoping to avoid further unrest, the Belgians just kind of washed their hands of the situation and didn't act to block the coup. Okay. So later in 1961, Rwanda's new Republican government would exile the Mwami K Kigari V from the country. Uh, he would flee to Congo and would end up failing to be granted asylum in several countries before settling in the U.S. in 92, uh, where he would spend the rest of his life running a foundation to support Rwandan refugees and promote peace in the country. Okay. Uh, he was exiled at only the age of 24 wow. and would pass away in 2017 at the age of 80. Wow. He lived a good long life, though. He did, yeah. yeah. In April of 1962, the UN would come to the conclusion that a permanent union between Burundi and Rwanda was simply not possible. Mm. Uh, two months later, they would vote to end the Belgian trustee agreement. And Rwanda would declare their independence just a couple days later on July 1st. So, yeah, Rwanda shares an Independence Day with Canada, which is kind of a fun fact. Like, 95 years later, but still. Sure, I like that, though. <laughs> Tutsi citizens would begin fleeing the country en masse after independence was declared. In 1963, a number of Tutsis that had gathered in Burundi would carry out an attack, uh, though it would be repelled by the Hutu government. Uh, the government would respond by killing between 12 and 20,000 Tutsis living in the country. So, is it a democracy, like technically? I'm not really sure. Okay. Um, there were There were elections held without the blessings of the belgians who obviously were very anti-colonialism on sure this podcast but they were just sort of people who got together and held an election okay and i get that like not not that many people are going to object to the leader of the revolution being put in charge after that's a right. pretty natural step yeah um i don't think any other elections are going to happen before we get into some more shit. Okay, here. so the Tutsis are just not being represented in government at all. I don't think at the moment. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. 
because uh, when those first elections happened in 1960, mm. it was a lot of sort of municipal local power being transferred into Hutu hands. Right. And now that this provisional all Hutu government has been formed and allowed to form by the Belgian government, mm-hmm. now the Tutsis are completely because they 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 okay. did still still hold federal office for, you know, six months to a year in between there. Okay. Um, but this, this killing of 12 to 22,000 Tutsis obviously accelerated this mass exodus from the country. Yes. The economic union between Rwanda and Burundi would be officially ended in 1964 and Rwanda would introduce its own currency at this time. So the next decade or so is comparatively quiet, though it is quiet in the sense of quiet before the storm. Mm -hmm. Like the tensions are ramping up and they come to a head in another coup in, I believe, 1973. I didn't put in my notes that would oust (laughs) Kai Banda from office and install Major General uh, Juvenal Habyari Mana. And he is also a Hutu. Uh, but Habyari Mana would dissolve the National Assembly and suspend the Constitution. So there was a conference held in 1974 in which Burundi, Rwanda, and Zaire, uh, which is the modern-day Democratic Republic of the Congo, okay. uh, would agree to economic and defensive cooperation. In 1975, Habyari Mana would form the National Revolutionary Movement for Development and would make it the country's only political party. So at this point, we are firmly not a democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a spectacular upset, he would be reelected in 1983 and wow. 1988. Twice? Twice. Jesus. Okay. When he was the only person running. Right. Who, who'd have thumped? <laughs> in 1988, 50,000 Hutu refugees that had fled to Burundi during Habyari Mana's regime would be forced to return due to violence in Burundi. Uh. In 1990, a Tutsi-led rebel group known as the Rwandan Patriotic Front would invade from Uganda with a force of five to 10,000. Habyari Mana would... They they would fight for the better part of a year, and Habyari Mana would sign a ceasefire in March of 1991. This would introduce a new constitution, finally, that legalized opposition parties, and they started proliferating like great. You know, a month later, there's seven. Two months later, there's 12. There's yeah. parties on parties on parties all of a sudden. So... Habyari Mana, he tried to create like a coalition government with some of these parties, but you know, he would come to an agreement with party A and then he'd try to rope party B in and they'd be like, I don't want to work with you if you're talking to those party A bitches and like down the line. Yeah. So there's, there's just so many viewpoints opening up across the country that he can't really form the coalition he's trying to make. But finally in 1993, he announces a new system of government that would see him sharing federal power with the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front that had just invaded. So the UN oversees these peace talks and for like a minute, it looks like civil war is in the past, Mm -hmm. but this decision, this power sharing decision is deeply unpopular with Hutu extremists and violence breaks out shortly after this announcement. Hundreds of people are killed. Uh, On April 6th of 1994, 
Habyarimana and the president of Burundi, Cyprian Nataya Mira, were flying to Kigali, the capital, when their plane was shot down by rockets from the ground. Many would point at the time to Hutu extremists as those responsible for the crash, but no conclusive proof has ever been found in the shooting of the plane. The prime minister was assassinated the next day. Uh, On April 9th, an interim government was founded by Hutu extremists, and mass killings swept throughout the country, led in particular by the military of this government and Hutu militias known as the Interahamwe uh, and the Impuza Mugambi, which are known as, which translate to those who attack together and those who have the same goal. So this is the beginning of the Rwandan genocide, and it is one of the quickest and most devastating genocides in human history. Over the course of a hundred days, Roughly 800,000 Tutsis and Hutu moderates were killed. The RPF fought back against the genocide and would reclaim much of the country by July. For more detailed accounts of this genocide, I recommend books on the topic by Jean Hatzfeld, including Machete Season and Life Laid Bare. I will also include a link in the show notes to the Genocide Archive of Rwanda. The International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda would be established in 1994 and would begin trying tens of thousands of genocide-related cases in 1995. Are they still doing it? Well, just to jump ahead for a minute, we're going to have to jump back to 1995. Sure. But come 2000, 2001, there's still way too many fucking people that have not been tried. So they institute a sort of traditional court system known as the Gakaka. Maybe my pronunciation's way off, but uh, what was originally hailed at the time as like a brilliant move of dealing with this situation has since drawn a lot of critics. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that because I believe that was going on up until like 2013, 2014. Oh, like just now. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to get into the weeds on exactly what happened there, but they did have to basically overhaul the whole system five or six years into the trials. And that continued for the better part of two decades. Cool. Okay. So, Two million Rwandans, back to 1995, both Tutsi and Hutu had fled into Zaire during the the genocide, again, the modern-day Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, Many of the Hutu militias that drove the genocide, like these... um, those who attack together and those who have the same goal, they would also flee into Zaire when the RPF took control of the country. Mm. They would actually gain control of these refugee camps and use them as a base to launch attacks on the country uh, and on Tutsis within Zaire. Rwanda and Uganda would back together a rebellion that deposed the president of Zaire, who was unwilling to cooperate with Rwanda in curbing these attacks. Uh, Laurent 
Laurent Kabila would become the new president of the country and it would become at this point the DRC. Uh, so when Kabila had also failed to expel the militias about, you know, a year and a half later, Rwanda would begin again supporting rebel forces attempting this time to oust Kabila. Mm. In 2000, then Vice President Paul Kagame would become the president. Um, this whole thing with the Congo or with the DRC would continue until 2002 when a peace agreement was reached where Rwanda would pull their troops out of the DRC in exchange for the disarmament and extradition of the Hutu extremist rebels. In 2004, a French judge would release a report that contained allegations that Kagame, the president, and his associates had ordered the rocket attack on Habyarimana's plane. Kagame would deny these allegations, but the judge would put arrest warrants out for several of his associates as the crew of the plane that was shot down were French. Uh, Rwanda would cut off relations with France over these allegations, and they would uh, allege from their own side that the French government had armed the rebels to carry out the attack. Mm. Kagame would launch an official investigation into French involvement in the plane crash, and this investigation would come to the conclusion that it was Hutu extremists who shot down the plane. Okay. Kagame's government suppressed opposition and media coverage leading up to the 2010 election. One leading opposition leader was arrested in the lead up to the ele election. Another would be killed, though Kagame would deny his involvement. That's sketchy, though. He is still the standing president of Rwanda and has even updated the constitution to allow himself to stay in office through 2034. His government has been plagued with accusations of corruption and human rights abuses. And that is where I'm going to pull us up to the modern day oh. and call that our history section. That was uh, time. It is, it's a really tough history and it's, it's a complicated history. Yep. But yep. we'll, we'll get into it a bit. The people of Rwanda are, are fascinating and they really seem to love the land itself. I'll get into this a bit in the anthem, but it, it does seem like it's just a, spectacularly beautiful and like lush country mm. i think at least like if you can't if you don't feel that great about your government or your country's history if it's a beautiful place like the rivers don't and the rainforests don't have political affiliations yeah. so that's kind of great so into our fun facts is it fun there's a couple fun ones <laughs> Okay. So Rwanda is the most densely populated country in Africa at a whopping 270 people per square kilometer. Wow. That's a lot. It is. I found this fascinating yeah. because it raised a lot of questions for me. Yeah. In 2009, Rwanda was the first country on earth to be declared officially landmine free, which for me raises the question, where are the fucking landmines in Canada? I wonder if maybe we like never had any. And so we never made the list to begin with. Fair enough. Maybe that's it. That's the only thing I can think of. Um, <laughs> I mean, good for them for getting rid of their landmines. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
I have a question though, because you said it's uh, like there's a lot of natural beauty. So is it just like really high density cities or? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, Lake Kivu is the largest lake in the country and it contains a island known simply as Bat Island that is home to thousands and thousands of fruit bats. Cool. (laughs) I love that. Uh, in 2017, the World Economic Forum would actually rank Rwanda as the ninth safest country on Earth. Huh. It has uh, also been ranked on other lists as like 11th. Like it is, they've been really working on their tourism industry and it is supposedly an incredibly safe country to visit now. That's great. Um, every month there is a day of community service in Rwanda known as the Umuganda, where all residents will work with their communities on a number of like public work projects. Mm. They'll plant trees, they'll fix potholes, Mm. they'll whatever. I love that. Yeah. I wish we did that. So there's not a lot of, so many of the people that like are famous in Rwanda are like, You know, there was one guy who I I started reading about his music career and it was like kind of interesting. And then it's like he was brought up on charges for using his music to incite genocide. Oh, yeah. So there's there's not a ton of fun, famous people out of Rwanda. But I'm actually going to talk about a famous American person who has a major connection to Rwanda. Okay. Uh, So Diane Fossey was an American conservationist who became a bit of a celebrity in the 1980s. Like she had her, her real 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes of fame (laughs) in the eighties. So she had spent several years in the volcanic mountains of Rwanda, studying the endangered mountain gorilla. Over half of these gorillas live in the mountains along the Rwandan border there. Um, She would compile much of this work into a book called Gorillas in the Mist that would be published oh, in 1983. I've seen that book it around for sure. It would later be made into a movie with Sigourney Weaver in 1988 well, that was go. nominated for five Oscars. Okay. Uh, she was a staunch anti-poacher. Like, Diane Fossey is a fascinating person. Yeah. She is a complicated person. Like, she was a staunch anti-poacher, yeah. but she was known for using brutal methods on poachers her team had captured she would burn down their homes and camps she once bragged in a letter to her friend about whipping a poacher in the testicles with stinging nettles okay so like poaching is bad but that's kind of crazy she had a reputation for when she came back to america stocking up on firecrackers and magic tricks and scary masks to try to convince poachers that she was a wielder of black magic. Oh, did it work? I think to a point. Okay, I'm also though just picturing like a woman in a Halloween mask doing like a pick a card trick in the jungle and that's kind of I'm not sure card tricks. No, no, but you said magic tricks and that's just where my brain went and then I'm picturing also a gorilla who's like that one, that card. Fossey would later be murdered in her camp in 1985. She was discovered by her assistant, Wayne McGuire. The Rwandan government would arrest the entire staff of her operation, except for, um, well, they would accept the entire staff of the operation, but they would later release everyone except for one guy who had already attempted to murder Fossey mm. once and hung himself in prison. 
despite this seemingly obvious admission of guilt for the murder, mm-hmm. the after Wayne Maguire had left for America, the Rwandan government would declare him guilty of the murder in absentia oh. and sentence him to death. There is no extradition treaty between America and Rwanda, so all he has to do is simply not go back to Rwanda. Right. Or, I guess, a country that has an extradition treaty with Rwanda. Right, but, right. That's weird. Yeah. It's a weird story. Um, so he was never sent to Rwanda to face this sentence, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, but there there have been incidents. Like, I saw there was an in- an incident where he had gotten a job, but then a local newspaper was writing about his ties to this murder case and he lost the job. Mm. So it's certainly not had no effect on Wayne Maguire's sure, life. Sure. Fosse, after her death, would have a biography written of her by beloved Canadian author Farley Mowat. Really? Yeah. Farley Lost in the Barrens? Man. Yeah. Huh. Called Woman in the Mist. Huh. Uh, Fosse, years after her death, would be described by a Wall Street journal journalist as a racist alcoholic who regarded her gorillas as far better than the African people who lived around them, hmm. which I think sounds pretty fair. Yeah, it tracks. It tracks. Um, so, yeah. Before we get into the anthem, I'll I'll get into what I was saying earlier about like why I think the people are so enamored with the country itself. Mm-hmm. The name of Rwanda's anthem is Rwanda Naziza, which translates to beautiful Rwanda. Mm. And if you search that on YouTube, you will find three dozen songs called Rwanda oh. Naziza all of which start with the lyrics Rwanda Naziza, none of which are the national anthem. That's fascinating. Everyone's writing songs called Beautiful Rwanda. I love that. I love that everyone's just like waking up in the morning being like, I'm going to write a song today called Beautiful Rwanda. And then, you know, we're going to put it on YouTube. I love that. So uh, we will take a break now and listen to the the recordings of the actual (laughs) Rwanda Naziza that I managed to track down. But... Do yourself a favor and search <laughs> up some of those others. Some of them were pretty great. Cool. So we have just taken a break to uh, listen to Rwanda Naziza or Beautiful Rwanda 
Uh, before I get into the history of the anthem, let's just touch base on the food we made for this episode. So looking into Rwandan cuisine, it was, again, a lot of ingredients that were going to be really tough to source in Toronto or just stuff that looked like I truly was not going to understand or like it. Uh <laughs> But what we did discover is there is a a style of hot sauce in Rwanda known as Pili Pili uh, that we made and tried on a couple of foods and it was great. Yeah. It's uh, it's super hot, at least the recipe or the way I made it. One of those like three drop hot sauces, as we yeah. call it. Yeah, it, it'll just a tiny bit will get you where you need to go. It's it's tasty, though. It's it's basically just peppers like this is not yes. a hot sauce with a lot of extraneous ingredients in it i feel you're also just getting good at making hot sauce though because that's true i've been doing it for a couple years now yeah so let's talk then a bit about the history of rwanda's national anthem great so their original anthem chosen at independence was a song called rwanda ruwaku or our rwanda Mm. Uh, when Paul Kagame took power in 2000, he began an effort of reconciliation where his government acted to change many of the national symbols of the country, including the flag, the coat of arms, and the anthem. Mm. So you were even saying during one of the videos, like, you wished the flag wasn't there so we could just watch the performers do their yeah. thing. But And I, I agree because it was a lovely performance, but also the history of the flag is tied up inextricably with the history of the anthem. Knowing that makes all the difference for sure. So the new flag, the original Rwandan flag had black and red and yellow and green. And the new flag would remove the black and red of the original flag to signal an end to blood and mourning. Oh, they would replace them with sky blue and a bright sun shining over the green and yellow that remained from the original flag. I was actually thinking that the flag is very like aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, I really I like it. I love the flag. I think it's really beautiful. Yeah, and like a little bit different than some other ones that you see. The government's stance was that this was done to show a new blank slate with regards to Rwanda's violent past. Critics of Kagame have expressed that they believe this was done in an effort to make sure that all of the national symbols are RPF symbols. I am not an expert on Kagame, so I am not going to throw my hat into this debate. Mm -hmm. Um, Tweet us if you have opinions. (laughs) People do, just maybe not ones that listen to this podcast. Uh, Yeah. So a competition would be held in 2001 to establish the new anthem. The winning melody was written by Captain Jean Bosco Hashakaimana of the Rwandan Army Brass Band. The winning lyrics were written by Faustin Murigo, a prison director from Karubanda. Hmm. It was made official on New Year's Day 2002. That's so recent. Yeah. Wow. No, I don't have a ton of information on... Uh, Marigo or Hashakaimana, mm-hmm. either one. What I do know is that where Marigo is mentioned outside of just he's the guy who wrote the lyrics, uh, he is mentioned for being heavily involved in the Gakaka courts that I mentioned earlier uh, that were instituted by the government to clear that enormous backlog of genocide related cases. Okay. Um, So he was a prison director, so obviously was heavily involved in that process. And that's all the history I've got for the anthem. 
It's very interesting, though. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested always when countries do like an overhaul or it's like, this isn't working. We're changing everything. Yeah. <laughs> like a rebranding almost of I was, who you are. I was interested. I think it was Palestine where their old anthem is Iraq's current anthem. Yeah. I was, I was surprised to see that that was a thing. This like national anthem research has been more like nuanced than I I thought. Yeah. I, I mean, I didn't really think. I just thought it was interesting. <laughs> I didn't stop for a minute to wonder how this stuff comes to be. And now that I have to get into it in such detail every week, it's like, oh, there's so many ways this can happen. It's fascinating. Um, revealing my ignorance at every turn. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about the lyrics of this anthem. I actually really liked these lyrics. I do too. I think their biggest problem is what seems like a really weird translation yes the translation is a little stiff maybe like there are lines in here that straight up don't make sense let us sing your glare and proclaim your high facts wait where does it say that i missed that the part? first stanza third last line oh it's true so i think that our perception of the lyrics is going to be okay. colored by what is clearly a half-assed translation. I can tell you a little bit because they have the French one next to it. Okay. Um, that line, I think, translates better to, like, we will sing your, like, praises yep. and, and... Praise is the obvious thing to fill in there. And proclaim your, like, successes and good deeds. Yeah. And, like, great accomplishments is more... What that mean? I think they directly translated facts from French, and it came across weird. Just a a highlight of these lyrics for me were whichever sassy bitch was putting the links in the fucking Wikipedia lyrics. Yes. Uh, they. My favorite part of it is uh the line where it says our single language unifies us. Yes. Uh, the word our links to Kinyarwanda, which is the official first language of Rwanda. Mm. Single links to French, which is also popularly spoken <laughs> in Rwanda. Lan links to English. Oh, it's Also true. popularly spoken in Rwanda. And Gwaj links to Swahili. <laughs> okay, so even though... <laughs> <laughs> I think just about, what? I think it's a case where just about everybody speaks Kinyarwanda. Okay. But they also maybe speak French or English or Swahili on the side. Right. Because Swahili is spoken many other places too. Right? Swahili is, I think we discovered the most widely spoken of the Bantu languages. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. That's, is very funny though that somebody did that. Yeah. I thought that was very funny. And only in um, the English version. We will defend links to list of wars involving Rwanda, shit like that. It's, I just thought it was very funny. It is very funny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I do think there's uh -huh. some really good things to these lyrics. There is, there is a lot of like good ideas being thrown around. The stanzas each have like a clear idea that they're covering yes and i think that last like the end of the last stanza is really an amazing way to end it and i'm sure again that this is uh a shaky ass translation but <laughs> the uh that you are free of all hindrance that your determination hires progress that you have excellent relations with all countries mm -hmm. and that finally your pride is worth your esteem 
And I think that closing line in particular is really something special. It is. It is very nice. I think I agree with you that each you said it so well that each stanza like kind of has a little mini thesis. Yeah. They each have a theme that Mm -hmm. they cover. Yeah. So while these lyrics are not flashy and they lack a little bit of sort of poetic grace that I think this translation didn't give them. (laughs) I do think there's a lot of good stuff going on here. I think I'm going to go 7.5. Yeah. I'm going to join you. I'm going to go seven. So let's talk a bit about the music. And again, I really like the music of this one. It's very, what I like about this one is that the music is very humble. That's true. I found it a little repetitive. That's fair. It's quite long and it is kind of the same. It's certainly not a particularly exciting melody, but it's also, it lacks some of the bombast of other melodies. And I I say that as a good thing. Yes. No, that's a compliment for sure. It is not so self-important. That's, um, um, that last version we watched, the duet between the the guitar and the ananga is such a delicate, beautiful performance that I think a lot of anthems no matter how softly you play them and on what instruments, they're never going to sound that delicate and soft. And I think that's one of this anthem's real strengths that whether or not you want to look at this changing of national symbols as a good thing, Mm -hmm. assuming this anthem was made to show a break from the violent past of the country, Mm -hmm. I think it does a very nice job of doing that. Yeah. I agree. The at least in the music of the anthem, there's like there's no military flair. No, and I think too it it lends itself nicely to sort of reworkings in the way that we saw with that last version, where in in that one I wasn't bothered by the repetition. Yeah, it was more the honestly the vocal version that we started with was a little like okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. <laughs> so I don't know. I would go probably. I'm gonna go seven point five on music. All right. I think I'm going to go for a seven. Background story, I think, is actually quite interesting. Yes, I like the background story. Um, I like that we actually have one. Yes, uh, always a good thing. So rare that <laughs> we actually know anything about the story. At least this was recent enough. I almost want to <laughs> give it, like, a little bit in background story for how much I like the flag, that it's you know tied to yeah I'm kind of being I might give it an extra point five for <laughs> for that but uh, yeah I do think again regardless of what we think of Kagame's intent mm-hmm. I do think trying to create this kind of blank slate after such a horrific period in the country's history is a good thing and i'm i think it's interesting that redoing these national symbols was one of the things the country did to do that it's very understandable yeah for sure it's it's a logical reaction to a horrifically violent time period um so i'm gonna go 8.5 yeah i'm gonna go i'm gonna go nine i think 
historical significance, I think another real strength. Yes, I agree. This anthem. If we talk about specificity, like this one's talking about the hills, like Rwanda is known as the land of a thousand hills. Mm -hmm. It's talking about the volcanoes. It's talking about the Banyarwanda, which we talked about is the entirety of the people in Rwanda. Yeah. Um, I, I love also this part. Oh, this in the in the third stanza where they're like, also, fuck you, colonialists. Yeah. That's great. I I love that they just kind of scooch that in quietly. Like, you wrecked our whole continent. Thanks. In the uh, in the original anthem, the the our Rwanda, mm. there's a great line about how like they threw out colonialism like an old worn out shoe. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. And like even I speak enough French that I could tell it was the same in the mm-hmm. French translation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. Oh yeah, um, yeah. No, I think I think this is very, very like strong I I think probably their their greatest strength here is the historical significance of this anthem. It really checks a lot of boxes about what the country is. It does. I think I might I might go nine again on this one. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. And let's talk X Factor, which despite the high ratings on everything else, I I kind of think is what this anthem's missing. I kind of agree. I was, I forgot a little bit about the X Factor and then I, I remembered and I was like, oh. It might be our first anthem to like score highly on everything except X Factor. Yeah. Because I really just don't objectively, I like so much about this anthem, but I'm not jumping out of my seat no and i'm not like bopping like i am sometimes yeah. when we listen to anthems you, you'll bop to some of the other rwandan diseases out there let me tell you oh ya. i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> this one may be lacking some bop people maybe heard that and went hey you know what we need is a bop inversion should we all <laughs> fucking start writing songs called oh canada that slap maybe it might disrupt the narrative a little bit <laughs> get the sticks out of our butts <laughs> But I, I also don't think it has no X factor. I think no. I'm going to go right down the middle here and give this a five. Yeah, I'm going to go four, I think. So let's take a second then and total up these scores. Sounds good. So Rwanda Naziza will be coming out with a very respectable 73.5. That is very respectable. Yeah, just in the bottom half of the top 10, it is right between Guatemala and Iceland, Mm. which is a pretty strong place. That's a strong place. Well done, Rwanda. So I am excited to find out what I am doing for my next country. I am going to have my very good friend Sam to join us on the episode. And I am going to roll that magical dice. (laughs) Give me a nice, even number 50. Number 50. Okay. Let me just scroll up here a little bit. Oh, this is fun. You get Denmark. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That'd be a fun colonial time, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait. All right. Well, we'll be back for the next two weeks to be learning about Italy from Kate. That's going to be a big old two-parter. Big old two parts. And then we're going to eat pasta as a reward at the end. (laughs) 
And then I guess uh, in two weeks, in three weeks, I will be back to do Denmark and I will get a good recipe from our previous guest, Nils. Yeah. Our, our good, good Danish friend <laughs> and our biggest fan. we get something very wrong? Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC podcast or send us an email at inallofuscommandpodcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we are not too big to admit we are wrong, and it will be corrected.